0: This is Glenn Crooks on Frame. New York City FC hired Ronnie Dyla as their fourth head coach this week, and he's hoping to get his visa in order by the time preseason starts on Sunday. So what do we know about Dyla? He's Norwegian, a 6'2 central defender in his playing days, a successful manager at both Stroms Gotset in Norway and the Celtic Football Club in Glasgow. Although, despite three trophies in two seasons at Celtic, he was dismissed from the hoops. Well, since we haven't had a chance to personally uh, talk with Ronnie Dyla yet, uh, I wanted to welcome in uh, a-, a journalist who has spent time with him and uh, covers Celtic FC uh, in Glasgow for The Athletic. Uh, he's Kieran Devlin. Kieran, uh, welcome to the program, and uh, how are you today?
1: I'm, I'm well, thanks, Glenn. How are you doing?
0: Very well, and there was much anticipation. You know, the supporters in particular were getting a little bit antsy with preseason uh, right around the corner, and uh, five days prior to the start of preseason, the coach was finally named, and I think when the name emerged, it was like, who? So, can you give us just a, a bit of an initial introduction to Ronnie Dyla?
1: Of course. So, I guess um, kicking off is he—he he was a very—he was a cult figure within Norway a couple of years ago, and um, from Celtic's experience, it was it was quite a similar response uh, to, to to New York City fans as well. Like we didn't really know who he was. Um, but once you know, as soon as you this man of mystery appears, you you start googling, you start looking him up, and the stories that come with them you get quite excited by. it. You get all these, you see the kind of football you are taking this this regional club Strom Godset. Um, I get it would be it's very he won the league and the uh, the main cup with them as well on a budget that would be quite similar to when Leicester City won the Premier League their wage budget was so low, um, so it was like quite an, an incredible achievement. And then um, he also, uh, when they saved them before, before he uh, he won the the cup and the league, he also saved them from relegation in the first season, which also showed the the, the the level of achievement that winning the league was. But I think the big thing with him was that once he saved them from relegation, he stripped to his pants on the pitch. I know that's quite an uh, it's quite an, an eccentric but endearing image. You know, fans like having a character, a personality uh, managing their managing their team. Someone who also just who loves it and gets as passionate about it as the fans do. Um, and when he arrived at Celtic, he that's the kind of person he was. He was incredibly passionate. He loved football. He loved talking about football. He lo- learning new things about football. And he but we'll, we'll obviously, be, uh, later on we can go into a bit more detail in terms of his time at Celtic and why it came unstuck and it wasn't. I didn't yeah. work out well in the end.
0: Well, but- I ha- I had written a uh, Kieran that he's a man of his word because apparently that uh, 2009 season when they avoided relegation, he said prior to the year that he indeed would just strip and. He did it, and now it's, yeah, that's become absolutely. a be, that's become a pretty viral moment now, uh, not just in the <laughs> metropolitan area but all over the states because that video uh, uh, it also included in your article about Ronnie Dyla mm-hmm. helping introduce him to the states and to New York City FC. Uh, you you do have that clip in there.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I think it just it testifies to his character. And when I've interviewed him, it's it does. He, the biggest thing about them is that he comes across as entirely sincere, as an entirely genuine guy, who's very thoughtful and he thinks about his answers very carefully. But he's also just a very down-to-earth person, and you don't get too many you don't get too many of those in professional football really. Well, the one uh,
0: uh, quote, uh, you know, just looking back at all the different. Uh, uh, places he's been most prominently strump scotset to where uh, they won their first league title in 43 years and only their second in 107 seasons under his leadership but there was a quote uh that uh, i think it was during his time there he said the most important talent i have i think is humility is that for yeah. real
1: yeah yeah definitely and i think what a big thing is i'm quite one of the reasons i'm most excited about seeing them um, and in, in the MLS on top of you know it's a new challenge it's quite it's an exciting it's an exciting up-and-coming league is I'm really interested to see how he's learned from his time at Celtic and his former club Valorenga because he is constantly a student of the game um, he is visitors when Brendan Rodgers was at Liverpool he went down to see um, to learn the methods there when Pep Guardiola was at Bayern Munich he was going across there to speak to people like He's he's constantly trying to learn and become a better coach and engage with different football philosophies and different coaching ideas. Um, so I think humility, and humility is a big part of that because he's constantly learning and hopefully becoming a better to- coach and learning the past mistakes. And he can really deliver for NYCFC in that regard.
0: Well, when he landed at it it was a player coach, I guess, and then he took over the, uh, the head coaching reins in 2008 – which was the same mm. year that uh Jurgen Klopp uh, began at Borussia Dortmund. So, uh mm. eventually there was this uh, comparison to to Klopp and uh, one of the coaches he also visited and like the high press, the fastball movement, mm. that that sort of thing. So, uh mm. is that comparison valid, do you think?
1: Yeah, yeah, it's definitely valid. Um I think that's what another reason why Celtic fans were so excited about him. Arriving is because, and when he arrived in 2014, this was the year after Borussia Dortmund got to the Champions League final by playing that way, and it really revolutionised. When you think about the biggest, most significant tactical development of the 2010s, it probably was um, Jurgen Klopp's gegenpressing. Um, so, like it was, it's really quite exciting to see that happen to a club like Celtic, and also. He has improved on that. He's developed it. He's learned not just to stick rigidly to what Klopp's ideas were, but maybe to adapt it in a similar way. Obviously, he's not at the level of a Klopp or Guardiola, but in a similar way, I think he's learned to adapt it to the environment and the set of players he has and the, the tactical setup that best suit them while maintaining the, the core ideas, the core idea of the high press, the you know the, the overloads, the high defensive line, that is so imperative to, you know, the core of the philosophy.
0: Well, when, let's get to when he uh, got to Celtic and what happened there. Yeah, uh, you know, I talked to one uh, one guy who's uh, currently in the club, and he said that he thinks in in retrospect that uh, Ronnie Dyla maybe underestimated the, the size of the club. You know, he'd gone from uh, mm. Strump's Gotset that uh, averages about 6,000 a game, or maybe that's their capacity at their stadium, to 60,000 at Celtic Park. You're a Celtic supporter. What, what a fantastic gig mm. you have to be in Glasgow mm. and, and get to cover <laughs> them. But uh, so from a supporter standpoint, too, you know, what happened? And mm. is do you think that was part of it? He wasn't quite ready.
1: Yeah, I think it was. It's. I think that's a really fair point to make. I think what something something um, there's a there's a Celtic fan podcast I do where we actually had a big we had like a two and a half hour uh, retrospective on the Ronald Dailly over the years, and I think the line I kept coming back to was that he was the right man for the right place at the wrong time. Uh, I think he he had his ideas were so radical and progressive that. Celtic as a club they, they were very set and they were quite an you know an old school setup they they liked having <laughs> the players liked having carbs for their lunch they weren't the, the they enjoyed drinking throughout the week they weren't they weren't the best athletes they weren't focused on they, they didn't really know the concept of marginal gains um, and Dyla really came in and he uprooted everything and I feel that he, because he knew he was in the right, because he knew that he wanted these players to be really good athletes, very tactically intelligent, to think deeply about football, not just as a job or as a sport, but as a philosophy. Um, and I think he'd, he was a bit naive, maybe, in terms of he just expected these people, because they were professional footballers, because they were grown adults, to respond, all of them to respond well to these quite radical ideas that non, that very few of them had experienced before um and it started to the first season there were some ups and downs but it seemed like there was some progress being made um the, some of the football played was amazing uh the results didn't always go the right way but there seemed to be a real core exciting young team there um and then in the second in the second season he, there was a few capitulations in Europe where, which suggested a mental fragility where the, and the players the, once, the, once the patterns, once the everything else had didn't work, there wasn't really a, a resilience there to like come through it on the other side. They give like Celtic even against a like a team with a much lower budget, a supposedly weaker side, like an Aberdeen or a Motherwell. If they took the lead, there was no confidence both in the stands with the fans, but also on the pitch there was no confidence that Celtic would come back and win. Um, and I think the big, the biggest issue I think I, I raised it in my article, and um, it has been raised before, is he. There were some enemies with it with him, um within the squad. There were three or four players who were big names and very, you know, very popular characters within the dressing room during Neil Lennon, who was Ronnie Dyla's predecessor. There was very popular there, and their likes that were Neil Lennon's way of doing things, the very old school form of management. Yeah, Neil. Uh, sorry, right. Go ahead.
0: Yeah, sorry to interrupt. But, uh, but yeah, Neil Lennon, his predecessor. So set that up, too, because yeah. it, it appeared, and this is in your story, and we're with Kieran Devlin, who writes for The Athletic, covers uh, the Celtic Football Club uh, in Glasgow. And there are a lot of Celtic supporters, as I'm sure you know, uh, stateside, in particular in the state mm. where I grew up, New Jersey, uh, Kearney, New <laughs> Jersey, in particular. And the uh, so Neil Lennon uh, gone. Roy Keane, uh, as you put in your article, he was uh, he was supposed to step in. It didn't work out, and and that left Diala. So was that part of the the issue too? Maybe is that part of maybe where he wasn't quite prepared?
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think another issue with that was I think he, he, he was he wasn't expecting the size of the the club. But I think he. Really loved that side of things. The fact that it was a massive club and he was an integral factor to it. He really bought into it. I'm not sure so much as like I find like the idea of like um, the size of a club can be quite an intangible concept to grapple with a lot of the time. I think the big issue for him was maybe there was a lack of ruthlessness and maybe a lack of maybe a lack of arrogance to be to get to the up the the, the higher highest tier of management. You need to believe. Indefatigably in your own convictions and in your own philosophies, and I don't think he had that. I think when things started to go a bit wrong, rather than just double down and get rid of all the the trouble the troublemakers in the dressing room, just say, right, we're going to work harder on these drills until you until you know these drills inside out and you're properly fit as a professional athlete should be. He stacked off, and some of the worst names in the dressing room started exploiting that and things became complacent and there was real animosity between everyone. So I feel like it's, it's not so much, a, well, I guess it is a naivety, but it's also like the humility that he has, the decency he has. Maybe he came back to bite him in a way. It's, it's quite a strange idea, but if to be the, the top level of, of manager, you do need that little bite of narcissism, maybe.
0: And, uh, he, uh, he ended up um, you know, learning, I, I suppose, quite a lot about himself mm. and his management style there for this big club. Mm. And now he's coming into what would be regarded as another big club, at least in the States, mm. because of the connection of Manchester City, the connection uh, mm. to the City Football Group as, as a satellite club. So what do you think are his uh, biggest takeaways? And there's also that uh, period of time for a couple of years uh, in Norway with uh, Valaranga before he, he came on board here.
1: hmm I think the big th- the he will, like, when I've interviewed him, I didn't never interviewed him when he was at Celtic, it's been afterwards. Um, and he's always been very thoughtful and very reflective of his time. He's, he's, he's very honest and says that he doesn't, he felt like a rabbit in the headlights sometimes and he didn't commit when he should have done. Uh, we shouldn't have, like, he's regrets not doubling down on his philosophies, getting rid of the troublemakers, all that stuff I was talking about before. He's very regretful of that but he's also very, very positive in what he did right. Like he did, there were times when they were playing really, really beautiful football. They were playing with a real sense of purpose and cohesion. And he thinks that if you can marry that with a certain ruthless streak, which he thinks he's grown since then. Like his, his time, he didn't set the header or light at Valerenga, but he did a good job by all accounts. Um, with a a club that's going through a bit of financial difficulty and already has a very low wage budget for the league Um, and I think the two big things which will be a positive for for, uh, NYCFC is the first one is what he's learned from the past that he will be very very keen now as you say he's got another big job he's very keen to repair his image and make amends and do a really good job now with this with this club, I think the second thing is also America's sporting culture is much more amenable to his ideas. Like there, there, there's a, a much uh, better acceptance of that, the concept of marginal gains, the concept of uh, the 24/7 athlete is much more ingrained into America's sporting culture compared to Scotland's. So I think there will be a, a more. I think there will be a lot more seamless. Transition for right. and maybe that more acceptance help. because of that. You yes. know, like yeah. within yeah. the
0: within the group, and and this club has been uh, tutored in a way that uh, certainly sounds uh, similar. And and mm. you, we have talked about uh, Ronnie DiLa and uh, some of the clubs that he spent time with uh, to nurture his development. And, and one of those mm. clubs was uh, Manchester City. Where yeah. he would pop in and and uh, and sort of see what's going on. So they had a relationship with him. They liked what he was doing because they were loaning players. Manchester City was loaning out players to clubs that he was coaching, and mm. uh, including uh, guys like uh, Martin Odegaard and and, mm. and Karen yeah. Tierney and uh, you know these uh, young players who got their debuts with him, their first team debuts and. Uh, it's really, um, I think that's a, a, a sort of significant part of this story is that there was this relationship with Man City, interestingly enough, that he probably initiated by going there just trying to get, uh, you know, soak more uh, knowledge in.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think he's... And it, I think I'm not sure it's been 100% confirmed yet but the Manchester City head women's coach I believe is coming over to join his staff at NYCFC as well. Yes, it's um, Nick Cushing
0: and that, that is official yeah. and yeah. he okay. so let's let's um
1: yeah we well
0: that's uh, Ultimately, that's one of the, the people that he met and got to know a little bit it was uh, mm. was Nick yeah. Cushing, and now he's part of his staff. City Football Group thinks very highly of Nick Cushing, mm. and uh, Carly Lloyd, who played for him there at Manchester City, uh, has applauded the hiring by New York City. She uh, thinks he's one of the best coaches she's ever had, but uh, yeah, so that relationship is bearing fruit.
1: Yeah, yeah, I I think it's, um, I'm not sure too many of the specifics, but I don't understand when, um, with Martin Odegaard making his debut for Strum Godset when he was, he'd just turned 15 like a few months before, it's quite remarkable, Um, and that's a a big thing for Diala is bringing through youth, he did it with Kieran Tierney, he was a big advocate of this, um, well one of Celtic's best players now, Callum McGregor, who's captained Scotland since, Dyler really brought him through as well. So I think uh, I'm not, I don't know the specifics of um, uh, cities, uh, New York City's own sort of youth development or this own academy, but that's a big thing for him. And he's got a really decent, regardless of other areas that he may have failed or underperformed. In his past, he's always been consistently very good with young players.
0: Well, the relationship between the the first team manager and the academy is very important in New York City FC. Mm. You'll see a lot of, uh, of uh, academy boys training with the first team, uh, not just during international windows, but on a regular basis including a a guy they just recently signed as a homegrown 17-year-old, Tavon Gray. Uh, Kieran Devlin uh, from Glasgow, where he covers Celtic, and uh, got to know Ronnie Dyla, who who is the former Celtic manager, now the head coach of uh, New York City FC. I want to ask you about Virgil van Dyke because Mm. here's here's a name everybody knows now, but maybe not so much so uh, uh, after the World Cup uh, for the Dutch, and then uh, he's at Celtic. Uh, Dyla was a centre back during his playing days. Kind of a similar mm. size. To what uh, extent do we credit uh, Dyla to the development of Virgil Van
1: Dyke? I think a great deal. Like I think a massive, massive amount. Um, that, uh, van Dyke had been at Celtic uh, one year before Dyla had, had arrived. So he'd been with Neil Lennon. Now, he's, he was obviously by by about Christmas. It was clear he was head and shoulders the best defender in the league. Um, but what? There was a bit of a problem that, like uh, the Louis van Hal, who was the Dutch manager at the time, he would sent his scouts scouts round, and uh, they didn't feel Van Dijk's playing from the back or his very um, proactive defending as uh, defending forward is the term they use, where he is not only comfortable with carrying the ball out and making uh, and making those kind of vertical passes towards the front three that the bypasses, the opposition midfield, but is also making space and really sort of pushing into areas that conventional defenders don't really don't really do that, which has always been a big thing for the Dutch ever since Johan Cruyff and that famous Ajax team of the 70s really instilled that sense of progressive movement from across the full team. Um and Van Dijk, the one of the first things Dyler did when he arrived was he sat down with Van Dyke and he told him two things, which was the reason you weren't pink for the World Cup squad is because you didn't defend forward enough and because you have too much weight. And in the first, in the first, I think it was the first three, maybe four months, Dyla, Dyla helped Van Dijk trim himself down to, they lost 10 kilograms, which is a pretty substantial amount. And the full squad collectively lost 60 kilograms. And it really ingrained in Dyla this attitude, uh, sorry, Van Dijk, of the 24-7 athlete. Yeah, I, I I think he's teetotal during the season now. Don't don't I'm not entirely sure, <laughs> but I think he's like he's definitely stripped back, like him going out and partying. He's definitely watching him, watching his diet better. He's focusing a lot more on his fitness and his all-round physique, and he's also really improved. Diala instructed him in those two capes of drills from a progressive ball-playing centre-back, and I think also just at his time at Celtic because Celtic there was. This inherent pressure to win every game—you know—every dropped point represents a, a mini crisis for Celtic. That really helps instill in Van Dyke. what you can see in this Liverpool team now, where they just—they just can't be beaten. They just refuse to be beaten. They refuse to not win. And I think that's a—that's a mentality he'd really developed during his time at Celtic as well. So I think it's a bit like—it's quite—it's quite obviously Scottish football is considered. A bit of a backwater in, in in some quarters, but like there's a there's a real sense that Van Dyke became the player he was in his two years at Celtic, and then that's really Jurgen Klopp and also his time at Southampton have just refined refined those ideas. Uh, ultimately leading to uh, Ballon d'Or runner-up, 2019
0: UEFA Player of the Year, Virgil Van Dyke. Well, let y- you've mentioned a couple of times the. Uh, the, the trimming of the physiques of the players and his mm. uh, his focus on uh, nutrition uh, what, mm. can, what, so what what are um, you know and again maybe stateside uh, that that's a more normal practice but what can uh, what can the players uh, for New York City FC expect just from that sort of thing
1: I think the the big thing is that he he just he cut out when he first arrived the big thing for him was a very healthy breakfast so when the players the players uh obviously have both breakfast and lunch on a, on a training day They their breakfast and lunch at the the training base and for breakfast he removed all cereals and fruit um so it was obviously a lot more about protein and porridge and it's that, that that kind of thing. It's just what we understand now is being the basics for our nutritional diet or like an athlete's diet. Um, he basically focused on that. And it was there was a bit of a within the Scottish media at the time, there was a bit of a backlash because for the lunch canteen he removed chips, well or, or French fries, <laughs> um in, in the US and it was it caused them a a mini stir. Even as even as late as twenty fourteen, that was considered quite a radical process to to get rid of get rid of uh chips but i think he's like i don't think there's anything too dramatic they are you know the fundamentals that's prioritizing um veg protein a lot of fish a lot of chicken you know, it's it's the fairly the basic set of things but he is very also very rigorous in terms of instituting a lot of gym sessions and a lot of cardio a lot of cardio work as well like he likes his players to run at full speed basically for 90 minutes twice a week. And he is a, a, a guy who uh,
0: I, I'm just reading previous quotes and people develop and grow and they, they change some of the things, uh, how they think about the game. But uh, there was one from a BBC.com a few years back. I would rather go down than play ugly football. Uh, this is when he was at Strom's it and then asked if he was aware that that might cost him his job, that kind of attitude. He said, players' development is much more important than my own future. My job is to develop the players. So you talked about you know, playing the beautiful game. Uh, mm. We know that New York City FC has uh, has, has played a, a certain style, especially under Patrick Vieira and then Dome Toron, where keeping the ball is uh, is a priority, controlling the mm-hmm. game is the priority and then when you read the quotes of sporting director David Lee he says well he matches uh, that philosophy is that, is that the way you uh, see it as well
1: absolutely and i think he's you look at his career in terms of how that's played out the trajectory of it i think it's it's that's absolutely the case and perhaps you could make a you, you could make a, a case to his detriment because he has he has like stuck so rigidly to his philosophy to his playing ideals that it is it, perhaps why he didn't quite get a really job before New York City. ...a good thing and if he can find a way to you know to corroborate it to bring to add a bit more substance to these ideals and a bit more of that ruthlessness I was talking about before then I see no reason why that can't be a bad thing um, or, you know, it may, be, it may be too idealistic. But, you know, well, you'd be going to football wanting to be idealistic, you know. <laughs>
0: well, no, the fact that he's also he's uh, taken in things from you, – you talked about Pep at Bayern Munich, but he's also been at Barcelona, Ajax. You know, he's really, um, he's really traveled and, and tried to, to figure it all out. And what coaches will normally do is they'll take it all in and then they'll mm. make it their own somehow. And uh, so in closing, Kieran – Mm. What what is the uh, for for the supporters and those that are uh, you know uh, their beloved New York City FC you know what are they going to get with Ronnie Dyla?
1: You're going to get a, a roller coaster ride, I imagine. Um, I there's if it's anything like Celtic, there are going to be some spectacular highs and maybe some serious lows. But I say I open my article. I think it's never going to be boring. There's always going to be a lot of drama, a lot of intrigue, and a plenty of excitement. Um, and I also think they're getting a genuinely really decent guy, and I, and I think just from my, my my perspective, I always think it's it means a lot when you know that your your manager is a very you know a, a very kind-hearted, but also a very passionate guy that you can, fans can relate to. They can see themselves having a beer with, and I think like it is. I think it, they should be very very excited because it's a bit of a mystery to myself as well. I obviously no idea how. And might pan out whether he has learned from the mistakes of the past. Because if he has, he could be a, like a superb coach that could you know take take them to unprecedented levels. Last
0: season, New York City reached the level of Eastern Conference regular season champions for the first time. Can Ronnie Dyla be the one to guide them to their first MLS Cup? Kieran Devlin, Celtic supporter. And a journalist who covers Celtic for The Athletic. Great portrayal of the new New York City FC coach. And our next episode, the thoughts of New York City FC winger Gary Mackay-Steven, who played under Dyla for a single season at Celtic. The U.S. men's national team with New York City's Sean Johnson, one of four keepers in Greg Berhalter's January camp, scheduled to be in Doha right now, but political tensions in the Middle East forced the team to move its training to Florida. Brian Sharetta covers the U.S. men for American Soccer Now, and he joined me recently for On Frame. Well, Brian, I think the first order of discussion is uh, something that was announced on Friday, uh, Friday evening, Eastern Time. And I suppose it was something we would almost assume due to the uh, conflicts in Iran and some of the things that have occurred uh, on on the global level and fears in the Middle East, uh, that that. Trip has been canceled. I'd say. I mean, I know there's some wording in there about the U.S. hoping one day to find a time to visit Cutter and their facilities. La la la. But 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 not in January, right?
2: That's correct. Yeah, they are. Um, uh, it is. Um, it's going to be. You know, it it's not going to be there. Let's put it this way: they're going to be in the United States um, having January camp as always. But you know, and it's too bad on a foot, on a footballing sense because. I like the move to playing the guitar because all those European teams are there on um, on winter breaks, you know, and they're trying to get friendlies in. So it's easy to get really good scrimmages in and training in, in those in those countries. But now, um, you know, but first things first is safety and 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 uh, and not, you know, you know, making decisions that's in the best interest of the players and the safety of the players. So yeah, I, mean, I think things, that they made they yeah. made the right decision.
0: It's the only decision. But it, it, just to, to review briefly about going to Qatar, now you, the, uh, there were some eyebrows raised just like, well, you haven't qualified for the World Cup yet. Look what happened last time. It's still two and a half years away. Uh, a lot of these players won't be on that roster. Uh, yet you also talked about there's, there are some quality teams to, uh, well, there were some quality teams to, to scrimmage against. So yeah, you said you thought it was a good idea.
2: Yeah, and on top of it too, you want to, you know, I know 2018 didn't work out, 2017 and 2018 didn't work out the way uh, the federation or fans expected it to do, but. Holding yourself up to the standard that you expect to qualify, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, this isn't jumping the gun. I think. I think it's it's also not just good for the players; it's good for the staff and in running their operation. Um, cause there's a lot done behind the scenes to make you know the World Cup a smooth process for the team um, to be there, and you want to be prepared when you get there so that you don't just qualify. Then all of a sudden, you have to learn like how to run an operation in the World Cup. Hosting country. I mean, I think back to thousand and nine, when they had the Confederations Cup in South Africa, and uh, then the World Cup the following year. They hadn't qualified for the World Cup um, at the time of the Confederations Cup, but they they treated it as if like they like this is how they were going to run their show if they did qualify. And from everything I've heard, is that it was a beneficial experience. They learned how to run their team, uh, and, and so it's not just for the players; it's for the staff and for um, and, and for the and for the, the all the administration of the team. So I um, agree. I agree. You know, I I agree. You know
0: it. it's attention to detail. Right. I mean, you you, right. w- you want to cover every aspect.
2: Right. Especially when, when you're dealing with a team, you know, like Qatar and a small, small geographic country like that. Um, you know, it, it's going to be very, e- you know, you got to make some trips there to understand, like, it, you're only dealing with a couple small places where the, where the venues are going to be. So you know, it's a, a any you can get over there, you're going to learn a lot about the entire country. It's not like you know, you just go to Los Angeles and you know the United States. You know, it's that's not that's not how it works. for New York City. Here you go, you go to Qatar. You can pretty much learn the lay of the land pretty quickly.
0: And and in the statement from uh, U.S. Soccer, the exact wording was: "We are working with the Qatar Football Association to find an opportunity in the near future for our team to experience Qatar's world class facilities." And hospitality. All right. Well, whatever. I mean, that's but, that's, but that's where, just yeah, What's those the are, window- Those are nice words. Yeah, they're it, nice words. Pretty like, empty. Yeah, and and unnecessary, really. But it, but is there really a chance to to get back there in the near future?
2: Well, I mean, I don't know what they're doing next January camp, um, or the you know or the January camp after that. There's still a couple of times. Uh, there's still a couple of opportunities, I think, but you know, before. Um, All right. Or another. I just don't think of that season. as
0: the near future. You know, that that's a year. A year
2: from now, but it's all relative, though, isn't it, Glenn? That's is. <laughs> I mean, you know, I it's it, it, those are legal words, you know, and uh, and uh, you know, I think that's just those are diplomatic words. Um, so I think you have to be that have to be said. But um, I, I think that they will, you know, if the tensions de- de- decrease in in the Middle East and and, a, and such a trip becomes doable, I think that they will try to do it. But you know, I think it's everything's just all up in the air right now.
0: Yep, um, I suppose it's not a bad time for diplomacy either. Uh, Brian Shoretta, our guest here, uh, a guy who uh, understands this U.S. men's national team and a guy who uh, you follow at Brian Shoretta, and you you know what all the Americans in Europe, what they're doing, uh, a lot of great updates, and a focus on this January camp. Each camp has its own unique quality. The January camp, Mm -hmm. it has one thing in common usually is that it's not uh, during a a specified FIFA international window or break, so uh, clubs around the world uh, are not – therefore not mandated to release their players. So you're not always sure who, who you're going to get. What was your initial reaction to the 25 who were invited?
2: I thought it was a youthful roster. I think it was a forward-looking roster. And what's funny, though, is like when you look at Atlanta United, it's showing that European teams are not the only ones not releasing their players for um, for uh, January camp, too. I mean, it's, it's kind of, uh, you know, some MLS teams are not always falling in line. I think last year or the year before it was FC Dallas that did the same thing um now do we know but, that
0: do we know that Miles Robinson, Brad Guzan and uh who my uh, Brooks Lennon were would would all have been invited in do you think
2: I mean, that's that's what the beat reporters were saying in Atlanta, and they're usually very good with their information. So, um, you know, and look, and, and all, it, it makes sense that Miles Robinson would be there because right. when you look at when you look at this, and he's the he's he's the most obvious candidate because and even Brooks Lennon, too, because he's a U23 guy. And then you, you see you saw over half this roster was eligible for the U.S. U23 team. So, um, you know, the fact that I mean, Miles Robinson's probably a starter on that U23 team. So it's a no brainer that those guys would have been called up. Um, yeah. So, know, so so
0: 14 of the players are U23 eligible. So that's right. So now and three months uh, before qualifying starts for them, the Olympic qualifying. And it this kind of experience certainly can be fruitful, but they're still not together as a unit, I you know. It, I, I find the U23 is pretty interesting right now, and, and when you look back at and, and the failures just to qualify, last time qualified 2008, didn't qualify the next two cycles, didn't qualify the cycle prior to that. I mean, it's it's been a, somewhat of a disaster, and, and I'm still not sensing the priority, but maybe I have that wrong. Hmm. What do you think?
2: You know, they, 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 they vocalize it being a priority, but let's face it, though, Glenn, it's a tough tournament to qualify for. It's it, there's only two teams from the region that make it. Um, this isn't like for example uh the u20 world Cup or u seventeen World Cup where they sent four or the World Cup, the senior world Cup where you know this you know they send three and a half out of this out, out of this region um, potentially four uh, so you know to qualify to send, to you know, to send t- just two teams is is tough, and it always comes down to a knockout round kind of a situation. And then, of course, you know you're dealing with youth tournaments where play- where teams are never required to release their players for youth tournaments. And then, was does is qualifying going to fall inside of an international window? Well, this time it's it's going to straddle an international window, but um but it might not. But 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 so there's there's no guarantee they're going to get their best players. So.
1: You know, and then
2: when you're dealing with older players than you are at the U17 or U20 level, you're dealing with players who are more relevant to their club's first teams. So they're yeah. probably not going to be released. So, you know, it becomes a very tough. Yeah, those situations make it a lot harder to qualify, and it's a shame because I remember this, this tournament when when they used to send when they used to send their best U23 players. It was a magnificent springboard um, to the first team. Uh, of the full national team, I remember 2008. You know, you had Holden, Bradley, Field, Hub, or Maurice Adu, Josie Altador. Those guys are were, were getting occasional caps with the U.S. team beforehand, but they used that tournament to springboard into being like full regulars for the for the for the national team. Um, and uh, that's just um, uh, you know, it, it, you'd hope that they could get there, but let's face it, it is not an easy tournament to qualify for
0: and and what you talk about outside the window so uh March 30th the CONCACAF semifinals uh for Olympic qualifying is outside the the FIFA window yeah. therefore and that's the you know the game you have to win yeah too. to get um, yeah you win that the game the final they, is
2: essentially it, the final is essentially
0: irrelevant meaningless
2: yeah. yeah yeah exactly so um so now you're dealing with uh um you know, a tournament that like, you know, you're not, you know, there's not going to be Josh Sargent or Tyler Adams or, you know, and, and even in MLS, I mean, I, I assume MLS is going to cooperate and send their, allow the best players to go. But eventually, but eventually that that might not be the case in the near future too. They might just, you know, Atlanta United wasn't happy with how Miles Robinson was, was treated with the last U.S. national team. They, I mean, they, Frank DeBoer had some pretty public comments um, against Greg Burhalter So I, all it has is, all it takes is Frank, you know, um, all it takes is DeBoer to come in and say, "No, I'm not releasing Miles Robinson." Then the team t- is dealt another blow. So it is, um, you know, it, it's a the U 23s is a, it's it, there's so many as you get older and older and older with these age groups, and you become less the qualifying and releasing the players becomes not on mandatory it's just tough <laughs> i mean um so you know i, I hope that they're going to qualify i think that they have a pretty good chance because a lot of these players are going to be coming from the last two u20 cycles so there's a familiarity among these players and let me tell you the last two u20s won their Concacaf tournaments so you know they, they've this, this this age group has shown over a four-year span to do well amongst its Concacaf peers but by no means is it assured
0: uh, Brian Shredda, he uh, writes for American Soccer Now among other publications and in uh, ASN uh, a recent article about a look at Burhalter's youthful U.S. Men's National Team January camp roster. Before we get to the youth, Bill Hamid is back. I mean mm-hmm. that was that was one of the you know Hamid is just uh, I don't recall any time where uh, watching this guy play not thinking he's. Yeah, he's one of the best keepers in the country. He might be the best pe- keeper in the country, yet he's not being invited into any camps. Was that a personal thing? Do you think?
2: You know, I don't know. I mean, it's going to be one of the things that I look forward to, or so not probably other reporters also look forward to asking um, uh, Greg uh, Greg Berhalter about. But remember, he also had some comments uh, that 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 were not taken well. I think, uh, at least looked <laughs> yeah. by fans. Uh, I guess over a little over a year ago. Now, now when he was you know, talking about himself in comparison to his, uh, to his competition, uh, uh other fellow American goalkeepers. And, you know, and, and that doesn't bode well when you have to then have to call a guy up and, and, you are know, trying to build a team. So, um, you know, maybe they've had some discussion. I'm just speculating here, but maybe they've, they've, they've talked with Bill yeah. Um oh, About he, that before he got called up. He
0: and Sean Johnson are close. I remember talking to Sean oh, yeah. after I mean, that about it and he to, was it, like,
2: "They were on the U 23s together." Yeah. You know, I think back in twenty eleven or twenty twelve.
0: Yeah. So he uh, Sean just kind of chuckled after uh, after those comments. I think it's you know those who know him uh, maybe don't uh, don't take offense. All right. Well, let's uh, let's get to some of these younger guys, and I know you're preparing uh, a couple of stories as well. Uh, I'm going to go in the order that you've uh, listed them in your article but uh, this guy uh, in particular uh, very intrigued by Jesus Ferreira got a chance Mm -hmm. to see him in person uh, calling a New York City FC game this year Uh, certainly a a dynamic forward his father at FC Dallas uh, prior to him part of the academy I mean he's he's just uh, he's just grown through that system and then He's soon going to be an American citizen, which qualifies him for U.S. men's national team duty. So this is a pretty intriguing story.
2: Yeah, I mean, he became a citizen, actually, I would say about two weeks ago, but then he still has to get... what What's preventing him from formally playing in meaningful games is, is, a, is a residency waiver um, from FIFA's residency requirements um, uh, that generally all naturalized citizens have to do, particularly at younger ages. It prevents, like countries from giving citizenship just for 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 soccer reasons um that's what it's aimed to but you but you you can get waivers for that if you can show you moved here for non-footballing reasons um uh you know they moved you know he moved here for his dad's footballing reasons not not his footballing reasons um and he stayed here for a better life but yeah i mean his dad was a colombian international so um yeah, I mean, it, 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 football runs in his blood. He's, a, he's one of the guys you want to keep in the mix. You know, I think it's exciting for him to, to, to be there. And, um, you know, and and I, and I hope that he can get that residency requirement so he can play in that Olympic qualifying because that could be a stage where he does very well. Look, the U.S. soccer has been trying to get him involved for quite some time. I mean, they wanted him for the U 20 world cup last summer, but citizenship didn't come in time and nor did, you know, and, and, but they, but Tabra called him into a big camp um, last January. So this is clearly, a, and then if he's already played with the U 23s in some camps, so this is a guy that they have wanted to have involved, but look, now this is his first camp since he has had his citizenship. So he's getting closer. Um, but certainly uh, it's an exciting development based on how he's been rated uh, by U S soccer and how he's performed with FC Dallas. All right, uh, Yuli
0: Yanez next. Uh, Wolfsburg U19 guy. Uh, tell us about him. Uh, you know, he came a big part of the U20 team, no question.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I think you know he was he was Tab Ramos liked him a lot. Tab Ramos speaks, spoke very highly of him. I think what hurt him at the U20 World Cup was the fact that he wasn't he hadn't been with he was aged his youthful age prevented him from moving to Wolfsburg till. After the U20 World Cup, so he's kind of in club limbo for several months for most of the year before the uh, U20 World Cup. So he wasn't in match fitness, but he's got a lot of skill. He's a winger, um, and you know U23 eligible, sure, but he's also one of a couple players uh, on this team who's u20 eligible so he's actually eligible for the 2021 u20s i think he will be a big part of that team as well but i think he's going to be probably one of the best players maybe the potential captain eligible for mexico as well i know you know he's talked about in the past or his dad on twitter has talked about you know um being open to playing for mexico but uh you know, I think um, this is a this is kind of U.S. Soccer saying, you know, we rate him, uh, we're going to give him this this opportunity. Do I think? I mean, if, to make the full team, he's going to have to uh, progress at Wolfsburg quite a bit um, and move beyond their U nineteen team. But uh, you know, and, and on top of it too, it's 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 kind of puzzling why Wolfsburg would let him go to this because you were kind of hoping with the numbers he's put up with the U nineteen team, which has been outstanding, that he would have been given a chance to train with their full team. Their first team uh, during this winter break for in, in you know with Wolfsburg's first team, but um, that didn't happen. But here he is though with the full national team, so it's a nice signal to send to a guy who's progressing nicely through the uh, through the U.S. system. Uh,
0: another guy who's a dual citizen, Mexico, United States, Julian full mm-hmm. uh, fullback on the right side for the LA Galaxy. Uh, the right back position for the US men's national team the first guy you think of is Reggie Cannon so he seems to be in for uh, and then you don't want to forget DeAndre uh, Yedlin so that seems to be or, a pretty Or Serginio Dest or you know? Sergio yeah. sorry I forgot about Dest so that seems to be a pretty stacked area
2: Well you know with Arahu he's another one like Lanes, who's eligible for the U20 team um, next next cycle so he look at like a guys like Yanes and Arahu Think about the youth soccer that they have in front of them. They have the twenty. they have potentially, they could play in the Olympics this year. They could play in the U 20 world cup next year. They in 2021, and then they could play in the Olympics in 2024. So all U 23 eligible. So that's how young you're dealing with right now with, uh, Arahu and, um, uh, Yanez. So Arahu, I think is also another one that, and look, he's done, he did well in this games with, with, um, with, uh, um, with the galaxy this year. And uh, I think he will be, you know, I think he's going into this U 20 cycle as, uh, another potential captain, uh, another guy who's, who's, who's very, very good. Uh, but, and it's another sign that, you know, for us soccer to, you know, To say like, look, you know, you're progressing very nicely. Here's an opportunity. You got a lot of youth soccer ahead of you, too. But we also want to give you this taste with the full national team. Um, Yeah, but there's a lot of competition ahead of him. I don't think, you know, in meaningful games, uh, I don't think he's close to the full team, full U.S. team, but he's on the right path to getting there at some point in his career.
0: And the next guy, uh, and you're, going to, you're working on a, a feature on a Christian Kappas, which uh, I think you ta- will be published Monday or Tuesday?
2: Uh, uh, early in the week. I'm
0: early sorry. in the week. I, we won't <laughs> I know how that is. We, we won't pinpoint it, but look out for it in American soccer now. But Christian Kappas. So this is a guy that was cut from the U-20s by Tab Ramos, central midfielder. Tell us about him.
2: Yeah, I mean, what I like about him is, is uh, you know, you got a lot of central midfielders in the US, t- U.S. system that, you know, they're small, they're tidy with the ball, they're quick as lightning. Capus is the guy who has skill with the ball, but he also has some size and some muscle. He's not going to get muscled off the ball. Um, he can play a physical game very, very well. He plays the number eight uh, position, and. Um, uh, and you know, he plays you know he's gotten a lot of minutes with Hobro in the Danish Superliga where he's, where he's learning a lot of tactical awareness and you know and those games are really tough when you're in the lower part of the standings there in Denmark. But he's still young. Um, he's a Houston native. Um, and it's kind of interesting too is like I think he want, his, his dream was to sign with FC Dallas, but unfortunately, in FC Dallas, he played with their youth academy, wanted him. They wanted him to sign him too. But Houston, the, the Dynamo objected to him from because uh, he came from within their homegrown territory, not Dallas's. So he didn't want to play for Houston. He wanted to play for Dallas. So he went abroad instead um, and landed himself in the Danish Super League. And he's done well. He's getting a lot of valuable minutes. And a guy I think uh, will be on the move this summer. Um, don't know where, but he'll move around within Europe.
0: He re- reminds me a little bit of Keaton Parks. I mean, the entire story. Texas. Tall, yeah, yeah, lanky. different players. Um, yeah, different kind again, of players.
2: Cappis is more defensively astute, um, yeah, than Parks. Uh, you know, I, I don't necessarily know if he has the, uh, you know, Keaton's, you know, probably more offensive, more more close. They both play an eight. I think Keaton plays the eight more like a ten, and Capus uh, plays the eight more like a six. If that makes any kind of sense, yeah, yeah. But um, but I think uh, you know, in the physical battle, uh, Kappas is, you know, it, it would be would be It has a leg up on Keaton in that regard. In a CONCACAF game, you know, those games get physical and chippy and stuff like that, so you need to be able to prepare those to play that kind of a game.
0: All right, a couple more guys here. Uh, One we uh, got a chance to see for the Colorado Rapids, Sam Vines, but again, uh, didn't really um, influence the U-20s in 2019. So tell us about Vines, where you think – he lands uh, in camp and and what his progress might be. He's a left back, which is a, it's yeah. a that's a position where there's not a lot of depth.
2: No, and I think you always, you know, every coach is under the assumption that you have to look at almost all viable left back options, particularly at the younger side, and see what you got there. Um, you know, it's just the nature of playing that position, and you know, and if you're a left back, it's you know, it's a real benefit for you. I mean, Vines is a guy who's started off getting a lot of u20 call-ups under tab last cycle and gradually fell out of favor uh, not just with Chris Gloucester who was the eventual starter at the World Cup but um, he you know he he ended up losing out to Matt real too from Philadelphia as a backup um, so it's um, you know I don't rate him as highly as the others I think he works really hard um, but even with the u23s I think it's been kind of tough for him to fit in so he was a curious call-up. Um, But, uh, you know, one that I still think, look, I mean, at this age, you can't discount anybody. It could, you know, players, there wouldn't be a first time like a 19-year-old, you know, hasn't had it all figured out. And then gradually, or a 20-year-old, and then gradually, you know, uh, gets back on the right track. So, um, you know, he obviously played a lot for Colorado, which speaks very well for him, too.
0: And then uh, the last guy, Brian, is uh, Brian Kaioh. Is it mm-hmm. Kayo or Ko? It's Kyle, right? Ko. K-O. Yeah, Kyle. 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 Uh, Kyle you're right. So uh, again, I'll just say, you know, I saw the name wasn't familiar. Uh, a DC United guy, maybe or no? Did he was it, did well, he, he was play there, for their he was academy? he
2: and then he rejected right. their homegrown. Offer, oh, okay. Signed for uh, Orange County SC in the USL, but that's kind of like if you remember what Haji Wright did. Um, he signed for the Cosmos, uh, you know, with the understanding he was gone when he turned 18 because so, he, he could leave abroad. Uh, I, I think uh is going to leave. Um, he's gone to he's going abroad um, uh, as soon as he turns 18. I think there's there's Wolfsburg interest. There's a couple of interests throughout Germany. But, you yes. know, I think this is the most this is probably the biggest stretch for for Berhalter. But. Another one uh, to say, but another message he can say like he watches all the U.S. youth teams because he was on the um, U-17 World Cup team that didn't really have a great performance at their World Cup in November. But uh, you know, at the same point too, he's a he's a he's a strong physical 6'1 midfielder. Um, so he's in very young. So uh, you know. Uh, I think it's one of the ones that must have caught uh, Berhalter's eye, and they want to, you know, give him a look, but also send a message too that they that, that you know they watch the U.S. youth teams closely for you know emerging talent. So that's what I think the message is here. But we'll see how he does in camp.
0: So this camp really, and you, you look at guys even like veterans, if you will, Jonathan Lewis, still under 23, eligible. Mm-hmm. I mean, this this camp very much. Uh, Will, it sounds like after talking to you and, and, and going through uh, these boys and their qualities, uh, th- this almost turns that into more of a U23 camp than a full camp.
2: Well, yeah, exactly. I think that, you know, they they're tr- if they're not going to have a U23 camp, a designated U23 camp this month, uh, might as well have it incorporated into the full team as much as possible so that, you know, when they are preparing for the team, they have the core together. Now, you know, it's... It, 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 you know whether or not we'll see with the change of the, with the fact that the camp's going to be here as opposed to Qatar or Qatar. Um, uh, maybe uh, maybe they call in other names now, like with other U twenty three eligible players that are domestic based, like Abobase or you know. Like we'll see where they we'll see where they go um, with it. Uh, a lot of it's up in the air right now, um, but. Um, yeah, I think it's a, it's good to prepare for the Olympics and not just for Olympics, but to have young players together and keeping them in the system. So, uh, I, I like the roster. I think it's, and I think it's, um, I think it's a very forward line, forward thinking. Um, there's, he, I think he covered a lot of bases, um, with the, with the names he called in.
0: Yeah. I, uh, seven players called in for the first time, 12 mm-hmm. uncapped players, but no trip to cutter. Uh, and, uh, It'll be stateside for the entirety of this uh, January camp leading into the February 1st uh, match against Costa Rica, the Friendly, which will be out uh, in Carson, California. But before we go, Brian, uh, there's a disappointing aspect to this because Jesse Marsh, who has emerged as an American in Europe having great success as a coach with Salzburg, and you talked about how uh, the – this uh, winter pause and the, the teams are, are, uh, are, are, are preparing for the second parts of their season. Salzburg is one of them. And, uh, Jesse Marsh and Salzburg, we're going to play a closed door against the U S men's national team, which was pretty intriguing and interesting and kind of fun, but uh, that's not going to take place now. So a bit disappointing there.
2: Yeah. I mean, look, Jesse's done an unbelievable job, uh, with Salzburg. And, you know, we were never going to see this game anyway. Um, and uh and information from it was going to be scarce but yeah it would have been kind of neat to see him you know around u.s soccer um again i know he he did some assistant work under bob bradley but uh you know it would have made for a great storyline um but you know i think um uh, hopefully we'll see it again down the line some point too but uh um you know Wishing Jesse the the best of luck in, uh, in in Qatar, and as well as being safe there as well. So, um, uh, yeah, that was that was an interesting lineup. I, and I hope that they can find a replacement opponent for for the U.S. team uh, soon. I, that's also a good question, though. Is like they had all these I, they were going to have these scrimmages lined up for the U.S. team, and now you know uh, they have they're going to have a long camp, but no opponents. Hopefully they can find some good opponents that aren't just like walkovers, that they can find some real challenging opponents. But that, that, that may or may not be possible at this. You know, with, with such a late notice.
0: That's soccer writer Brian Sharetta. Make sure to follow his coverage of the U.S. men at Brian Sharetta. And that'll do it for today. Thanks to Brian and also Kieran Devlin of The Athletic and a close-up look at New York City's new manager, Ronnie Dila. This is Glenn Crooks on Frame.